518, Chapters 2 and 3 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Book talk starts at 1718. Welcome to Craplet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover. And I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 518, Linden Carr. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I hope you are physically, but not emotionally distanced from people in a way that is both legal and useful. (laughs) On the uh, Craftlet chats, the book chats on Tuesdays and Thursdays, 5 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday and 7 p.m. Eastern on Thursday. Links are in the show notes for episode 517. So that's craftlit.com slash 517. I have learned just the the wide, the vast differences in how coronavirus is being policied (laughs) from place to place. Some places, their policies are rather strict. Some places, not so much. Uh, This week, in this week in COVID-19, New York City's numbers are finally coming down. And the interesting thing is that if you remove New York City from the entire United States, the United States numbers are not coming down. So this is going to be very interesting to watch. I am fascinated in the way that I'm fascinated by slow motion train wrecks. So we shall see what uh, what happens here. But it's been a weird, it's been a weird week in the old U.S. Saw things here that I never expected to see in my lifetime. That said, my lifetime is extended a little bit longer because I just had my birthday on Cinco de Tequila. I mean, Cinco de Mayo. And there was tequila. My husband, Andrew, made Ropa Vieja, which is really good, slow-cooked, shredded beef stuff. I think it's a Cuban recipe. We got it at a Cuban restaurant. Really, really good. So that was a happy birthday recipe surprise, along with a margarita. And a Zoom call with my entire family, which, strangely enough, is something that we hadn't done, even though the technology was there. But I got to see my aunt in Seattle and all of my family. And and it was great. It was great to get a chance to see everybody all all together and laughing. And that was probably the best birthday present I could have gotten. In crafty news, I am noticing uh, among our Tuesday and Thursday callers, in the beginning, there were a lot of blankets and, and things of that nature. And I am getting a sneaking, well, uh, actually blankets and sweaters, some beautiful sweaters. And now, now we seem to be 
moving down into the bag of UFOs, I am noticing uh, unfinished objects are definitely being attended to. Part, you know, part of it, honestly, is that it's hard to go shopping for yarn since you can't touch it. And we're here and seeing all the things all the time, all the things that need to be done. So it, it makes it pretty easy. I have discovered some UFOs that are older than the podcast. I think I mentioned the 2002 Vogue Map of the World Afghan, which I am now finally making headway on again. So that's kind of cool. But I also came across several UFOs that I just had not remembered starting. Not all of them have patterns with them, so not all of them are going to be finished. And some of them are going to go needles and all into the the box for our local recycling store, uh, thrift store. Just because somebody somebody smart can make something interesting out of these starts. So there's that. I have also been working on, remember several years ago, it was probably three or four years ago, I had found a really good ebook online for how to make a t-shirt quilt. One that utilized the different, differently sized logos and things so that you could get a four by four square or an eight by eight square or a four by eight rectangle or a 12 by eight rectangle. And because of that, number one, it works because everything is a multiple of four, but it is also uh, interesting because I realized, wow, I really need to put some interfacing, lightweight, fusible interfacing on the back of these t-shirts. And how did I learn that? I learned that from making masks because the t-shirt material is floppy. It's really actually very nice to have on the inside of the mask because it is not scritchy scratchy. It's very, very comfortable if you have to wear a mask for a long period of time, but it's very floppy. And I know you're going to be shocked. <laughs> and it's also stretchy. And sometimes that means it hangs on the inside in an interesting way. Once you put it on your face, it's fine, but it's really unattractive in some cases prior to that. If you are making Olsen masks with t-shirts on the inside, I did find something else that was very useful. Uh, collected all of the t-shirts in the house that nobody wants to wear anymore. And I am using the hemmed edges from the bottom of the shirt and from the bottom of the sleeves for the visible edges of the filter pocket on the Olsen masks. That way I don't have to hem them. <laughs> so save myself a step really, really fast that way. Oh, and I also found a, a tutorial on YouTube for how to make a ridiculous amount of t-shirt yarn or ties for masks because there is no elastic anymore. I'm going to give you the quick and dirty version. This is, I think, pretty much all you're going to need to know. Flatten out the t-shirt. If you can, it will just make your life easier. If you can, either cut off or what I've been doing because I have the time, I've been going around with a seam ripper. <laughs> 
and undoing a lot of t-shirts so that I have the individual pieces, but usable because I can lie them flat if I need to or fold them back if I need to. But if you can get a t-shirt to lie flat with or without the arms on, you first off cut the hem off. If you have one of the, the little roller razor cutters, so much the easier. But use a straight edge and be careful because those suckers are sharp. Then fold one side edge over to within like two inches of the next side. So you will have both edges visible. So like two selvage edges, you know, like if you were folding fabric and then one folded edge. Now you take a rotary cutter or if you're really good, a pair of scissors. And I've been going back and forth between an inch to an inch and a half. I actually think, strangely enough, an inch and a quarter is exactly the right amount for making ties for masks. If you are making yarn, keep it to an inch. You then take the rotary cutter and make horizontal lines, horizontal to the where, where the hem used to be. Cut across the double thickness. It's actually quadruple because you had the t-shirt flat. But the part that's been folded over, cut all the way through that, just past the edge of that shirt which means that if you unfolded the whole thing, you would have about two inches of uncut t-shirt and these streamers hanging down of the cut portion. So you make every inch and a quarter or so, you make one of these horizontal cuts all the way up until you can't anymore because you've hit the arms. Once that's happened, you pick it up, slide your arm through the uncut portion so you're basically sliding your arm up the other side of the t-shirt and lift your arm up and you have these hanging streamers these loops of cut t-shirt and about two inches maybe four of uncut t-shirt first clip one of those streamers the one closest to your elbow is easiest and then start cutting diagonally so that you are, by, by doing the diagonal cut, you are making a single piece of yarn or string or mask tie out of this ginormous swatch of otherwise shredded t-shirt. So you just keep making those diagonal cuts from, from one loop end to the beginning of the other one on the other side of your arm. I don't know if this is making any sense. If you do it, it'll make more sense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in doing those diagonal cuts, you would think as you're cutting it, wow, this is never going to work because this is an enormous jog. I mean, that's an inch and a quarter, inch to an inch and a quarter discrepancy between the the ending edge of one part of the yarn and and the continuation of that. It's it's a it's a pretty sizable jog. It's really interesting because once you're done and you have this big pile of yarn barf that used to be a t-shirt, uh, start at one end and grip it. And then with the other hand, pull the yarn through your gripped hand to stretch the t-shirt material out. And it pops into a little rolled shape and you wind up with way more than you thought you had to begin with because it's stretchy and all of those weird diagonal jogs disappear 
completely. You would never, ever know that they aren't there. So that was kind of cool. Uh, I know people are using that to make rag rugs, like um, braided rag rugs, which is also cool. So yeah, if you got a lot of leftover t-shirts, now you've got something to do with them. I have also been trying to get out to walk in the nature. We have a road not far from where we're living that gets very natured rather quickly. Um, it's pretty sparsely populated. And some of the homes that are on the street are really spectacularly old and, and really interesting looking places. We also are on a floodplain. And part of being on the floodplain is because we have a spring, a bubbling spring that starts a creek. And the creek has a pond. And the pond is on the street. And the pond is behind a fence. But there's no gate on the fence. There is an open section. And it looks like it's on somebody's property. But maybe not. Because I think that's part of why the fence is there. So I'm going to try and find out if it is part of their property by dropping off a, a little postcard today when I go on my walk. And on the postcard, I, I wrote and said, uh, hi, I'm bored. Can I come sketch at your pond? <laughs> if so, please email or call. Because, I, you know, I don't want to just walk onto somebody's property and get yelled at or, or chased off because that would be embarrassing. So we'll see. But I drew a little sketch of the weird looking fire hydrant. It is, it's a cool little deal. And uh, I did a little sketch of that on the other side of the postcard. This is one of those cardstock paper baggy kind of paper, craft paper postcards that I bought. I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast. I bought a stack of like 50 of these suckers at the beginning of the lockdown. And I haven't used a ton of them, but when I have, I've really enjoyed it. But what's interesting is because it is craft paper and therefore brown, I thought, oh, I could draw them a sketch of their fire hydrant, this ancient fire hydrant, because it's old and rusty and brown. And I've never drawn on brown craft paper before. So for the first time, I got to do highlights and stuff with, um, with a white color pencil. And I'm really happy with the way it turned out. So I will, I'll be sharing that on Instagram. You can see right now a picture of the actual fire hydrant on my Instagram feed, which is H Ordover, all one word. I took a bunch of pictures on my morning walk because people have been hanging things up that are encouraging and very sweet and very, you know, we're all in it together. Everybody wants everything to get back to normal, if there's ever going to be a normal, or at least get back to the point where we can do things again. So it's kind of nice. And I, and I shared those pictures and the, the fire hydrant, the actual fire hydrant, not my sketch, is one of them. The sketch will be its own thing. For my birthday, I also got a really cute kit. This is a, a monthly kit called Let's Make Art right? So let's make art. I think it's letsmakeart.com. There you go. Uh, you are shipped a box with more or less all of the tools that you will need for creating four separate works of art. 
this month it's watercolors and you're given templates and graphite paper and four little bottles. I've never used liquid watercolors like this before. They're closer to an ink than they are what you think of as a watercolor, but very fun to use and really lovely. And they, because they know, give you two uh, really good quality, nice pieces of watercolor paper for each one of the activities, one for each week, because they know me and that I'm not going to be happy with my first version. So I've done the first piece from that kit, which was a peony. And I've never painted one before. And while there are parts of the painting that I am happy with, I am not entirely happy yet. But we'll get there. We will totally get there. So yeah, we're just figuring out how to keep going, right? Like we all are. It's an interesting time, which is, there's that curse, right? May you live in interesting times. Yeah, here we are. So, Tenant of Wildfell Hall. Aha, aha, aha. I, uh, I, I know <laughs> last week on Facebook, we had a little conversation about Anne Bronte, you know, because she's clearly such a shy, retiring Violet, <laughs> like all of the myths about her are. Yeah, she didn't have opinions about anything. And boy, is this chapter, uh, the two chapters today, they are going to really prove that she has no opinions at all about anything, she said sarcastically. Anne actually has a moment in the text today, it is not often you see this, where she has a character who is so impassioned about what she's saying that she starts to get lost in her argument. And so at the end of the argument, somebody's like, well, I have no response to that incomprehensible word salad, which is kind of what you're thinking by the end of it. I mean, she she definitely has points that she is making and you get it. You know what she's saying, but it's not the most eloquent monologue ever and clearly isn't supposed to be. So we have some really interesting stuff happening in our chapters today. Obviously, we're still in exposition land, so we are in the process of meeting people and meeting places like Linden Carr, which is the name of this episode. Linden, uh, according to my sources, Linden comes from the word lime tree. I don't know if this is true, and I would be very happy to hear from anyone who actually knows. And the reason why I'm saying I don't think this is true is because the second half of the name, Linden Carr, is North Yorkshire area. I Not really slang, just colloquialism for a, a marshy area or a bog. And Car is spelled several different ways. In the book, it's spelled C-A-R. It's also K-A-R. It's also K-E-E-R. It's got a lot of different versions. So the idea that Linden would be for lime tree, I found odd because I don't think limes ever show up in the rest of the book. It's not like Amy March. But either way, Gilbert Markham lives at Linden Carr with his mother and his ridiculous brother and his sister, 
prose. We are still in our letter framework. So the opening of chapter two will be the opening of another letter. And then it will go from those introductory remarks right into the narrative. So that's not a surprise. Pretty quickly, uh, Gilbert uses the word superannuated as a way to, dis- to describe Wildfell Hall. Superannuated means it's been overtaken by newer, better technology, or in this case, architecture. Nobody makes a house like this anymore. This kind of house was drafty and not particularly laid out in a way that would be easier, comfortable to live in. So it's a great word. I just love that. Superannuated. Castellated is exactly what you think it is. Like the top of a castle wall, like a rook, uh, a chess piece. The top edges of a classic rook is castellated. Gilbert is going to have some funny moments in today's chapters, but they are subtle. So you do have to listen for them. He also gives us some real hints about how old he is now writing the letter versus how young he was then. He's 24, but he's, he's a young 24 in a lot of ways. I mean, he's, he's a hard worker. He works on the farm. He works the farm, but he's still young. And, and so you get commentary from him about youthful foibles. But you also get to see where his self-awareness ends, which is kind of fun and and some really nice writing on Anne Bronte's part. She really does a lovely job in these two chapters of giving you tons of character information, but not by describing it. It is a lesson, these two chapters in Show, Don't Tell. Show us what these people are like by how they behave and especially how they behave with each other. I should remind you, because I know you already know, but just a a heads up, young boys uh, at this time, early 1800s, were still basically dressed like girls for a while. And then they got their their knee breeches and then trousers. It was a big moves. So there is a young child you see who will be described as wearing a frock. That is because he is still being dressed as though he were a girl in that time period. The thing to know is that he is old enough that he probably shouldn't be in that frock anymore. And that will be something that we talk about on the, on the flip side. You'll hear a reference to th- this happening before people had a mania for Berlin wools. So there was a stretch of time in the early 1800s, like 1825 to 1840-ish, where people were starting to do what's either called tent stitch or cross stitch on brown fabric. And they were using very brightly colored, kind of thick, worsted, scritchy, scratchy, worsted wool to make these, they're kind of tapestries. These things, you know what they look like because they often wound up becoming fire screens. So if you've seen any pictures or if you've been lucky enough to visit any of these old homes that are set up as though people lived there, there is 
invariably going to be some kind of large-ish, rectangular-ish, or round-ish stand. It's not a it's not a screen that you could use to separate a room because it they usually only come up to the top of the fireplace, up to about the mantelpiece. And all it was there for was to deflect most of the hottest heat off of you so you didn't melt or freeze. <laughs> you had two choices. Too close to the fire, you burn. Too far away from the fire, you freeze. Uh, the fire screen allowed you to block a little bit of the fire heat, but it's a porous thing. It's just fabric. So you still get some warmth coming at you, but it also lets you kind of deflect some of the heat too. So depending on which where you aim the flat edge, you can you can make the room a little bit more comfortable. But either way, uh, if you see one of these fire screens that was made in the early 1800s, there's a good chance that it was made using what's called Berlin wool. So there you go. And Bronte does this in part to locate us in time. There are a few places where she... Uh, drops information that is kind of time specific and and for the most part she's consistent and correct which is impressive when you think about it because she couldn't use the google so yeah i know so last thing and then i'm going to let you listen to the the chapter we get obviously i've already mentioned it a description of wildfell hall today we get gilbert's description to us And his description is fairly detailed because, remember, he's not describing this to us. He's describing it to his friend. His friend, who is now married to Rose, he makes that comment in the opening letter uh, that the friend he's writing to now knows Rose far better and is his brother-in-law, somebody who he didn't know at all at the time of this story, but who he's gotten very, very close to since. So Gilbert's description of Wildfell Hall is doing pretty much exactly the same thing that Jane Austen's description of Pemberley did for Darcy. Reaching back 14 years into the past, one of the chapters I remember recording was the the Pemberley chapter and how the description of Pemberley was a perfect metaphor for Darcy's psychology. And while Wildfell Hall is not a perfect description of Mrs. Graham's psychology, it is important. And that will be clearer as we go through the book. You'll have a better idea of why it is the way it is. There is also the fact that as you've already gotten hints, Wildfell Hall has been not a ruin, but uninhabited for about 15 years. So cobwebs. But also, if this was Emily's book, and Emily Bronte was was writing this, you know, it would all be tortured. No, it would be trees that had been tortured and torqued by the wind. And it would be raining and there would probably be lightning, and some miserable person would be lurking somewhere, and uh, it would be on a blasted heath. (laughs) You know, it would have been gothic, really. 
for the most part. That's not what Anne does for us. Anne, Anne sticks to reality so carefully throughout the book. Hyperbole is not something she participates in anywhere in this, nor is a, a kind of glorified romanticism, capital R. While there may be Byronic characters, they are not the heroes. So Anne is laying the groundwork for that here. She also has a beautiful description of the child wearing the frock. And it's it's really clear that she she may have been the governess to some pretty appalling children, but that didn't mean that she didn't love children. That's probably one of the biggest tragedies of, well, all of their lives, but Anne in particular. The chapter today may make you think that I'm nuts, but I think she would have been a lovely mother. And it's it just breaks my heart that she died so young. So on that cheerful note, I will turn you over to our reader, Eden Ballantyne, reading chapters two and three of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, chapter two, an interview. I perceive with joy, my most valued friend, that the cloud of your displeasure has passed away. The light of your countenance blessed me once more, and you desire the continuation of my story. Therefore, without more ado, you shall have it. I think the day I last mentioned was a certain Sunday, the latest in the October 1827. On the following Tuesday, I was out with my dog and gun, in pursuit of such game as I could find within the territory of Linden Carr, but finding none at all, I turned my arms against the hawks and carrion crows, whose depredations, as I suspected, had deprived me of better prey. To this end, I left the more frequented regions, the wooded valleys, the cornfields, the meadowlands, and proceeded to mount the steep acclivity to Wildfell, the wildest and the loftiest eminence in the neighbourhood, where, as you ascend, the hedges, as well as the trees, become scant and stunted, the former at length giving place to rough stone fences, partly greened over with ivy and moss, the latter to larch and scotch fir trees, or isolated blackthorns. The fields, being rough and stony, and wholly unfit for the plough, were mostly devoted to the pasturing of sheep and cattle. The soil was thin and poor, bits of grey rock here and there peeped out from the grassy hillocks, bilberry plants and heather, relics of a more savage wilderness grew under the walls, and in many of the enclosures, Ragweeds and rushes usurped the supremacy over the scant herbage. But these were not my property. Near the top of this hill, about two miles from Linden Carr, stood Wildfell Hall, a superannuated mansion of the Elizabethan era, built of dark grey stone, venerable and picturesque to look at, but doubtless cold and gloomy enough to inhabit, with its thick stone mullions and little lattice panes, its time-eaten air-holes, and its too lonely, too unsheltered situation, only shielded from the war of wind and weather by a group of Scotch firs, themselves half-blighted with storms, and looking as stern and gloomy as the hall itself. Behind it lay a few desolate fields, and then the brown, heath-clad summit of the hill. Before it, enclosed by stone walls, and entered by an iron gate, with large balls of grey granite, 
similar to those which decorated the roof and gables surmounting the gateposts, was a garden. One stocked with such hard plants and flowers as could best brook the soil and climate, and such trees and shrubs as could best endure the garner's torturing shears, and most readily assume the shapes he chose to give them, now, having been left so many years untilled and untrimmed, abandoned to the weeds and the grass, to the frost and the wind, the rain and the drought, it presented a very singular appearance indeed. The close green walls of the privet that had bordered the principal walk were two-thirds withered away, and the rest grown beyond all reasonable bounds. The old boxwood swan that sat beside the scraper had lost its neck and half its body. The castellated towers of laurel in the middle of the garden, the gigantic warrior that stood on one side of the gateway and the lion that guarded the other, were sprouting into such fantastical shapes as resembled nothing either in heaven or earth or in the waters under the earth, but to my young imagination they presented all of them a goblinish appearance that harmonised well with the ghostly legions and dark traditions our old nurse had told us respecting the haunted hall and its departed occupants. I had succeeded in killing a hawk and two crows when I came within sight of the mansion, and then, relinquishing further depredations, I sauntered on, to have a look at the old place, and to see what changes had been wrought in it by its new inhabitant. I did not like to go quite to the front and stare in at the gate, but I paused beside the garden wall and looked, and saw no change except in one wing, where the broken windows and dilapidated roof had evidently been repaired, and where a thin wreath of smoke curled up from the stack of chimneys. While I stood thus, leaning on my gun, and looking up at the dark gables, sunk in an idle reverie, weaving a tissue of wayward fancies, in which old associations and the fair young hermit, now within these walls, bore a nearly equal part. I heard a slight rustling, and scrambling just within the garden, and glancing in the direction of whence the sound proceeded, I beheld a tiny hand elevated above the wall. It clung to the topmost stone, and then another little hand was raised to take a firmer hold, and then appeared a small white forehead, surmounted with a wreath of light brown hair, with a pair of deep blue eyes beneath, and the upper portion of a diminutive ivory nose. The eyes did not notice me, but sparkled with glee on beholding Sancho, my beautiful black-and-white setter that was coursing about the field with its muzzle to the ground. The little creature raised its face and called aloud to the dog. The good-natured animal paused, looking up, wagging its tail, but made no further advances. The child, a little boy, apparently about five years old, scrambled up to the top of the wall and called again and again, but finding this of no avail, apparently made up his mind, like Mohammed, to go to the mountain, since the mountain would not come to him, and attempted to get over. But a crabbed old cherry tree that grew hard by caught him by the frock in one of its crooked scraggy arms that stretched over the wall. In attempting to disengage himself, his foot slipped, and down he tumbled, but not to the earth. The tree still kept him suspended. There was a silent struggle, and then a piercing shriek, but in an instant I had dropped my gun on the grass, and caught the little fellow in my arms. I wiped his eyes with his frock, and told him he was all right, and called Sancho to pacify him. He was just putting little hand on the dog's neck, and beginning to smile through the tears, when I heard behind me a click of the iron gate, 
and a rustling of female garments, and lo, Mrs. Graham darted upon me, her neck uncovered, her black locks streaming in the wind. Give me the child, she said in a voice scarce louder than a whisper, but with a tone of startling vehemence, and, seizing the boy, she snatched him away from me, as if some dire contamination were in my touch, and then stood with one hand firmly clasping his, the other on his shoulder, fixing upon me her large, luminous, dark eyes pale, breathlessly quivering with agitation. I was not harming the child, madam, said I, scarcely knowing whether to be most astonished or displeased. He was tumbling off the wall there, and I was so fortunate as to catch him, while he hung suspended headlong from the tree, and prevented I know not what catastrophe. I beg your pardon, sir, stammered she, suddenly calming down, the light of reason seeming to break upon her beclouded spirit, and a faint blush mantling on her cheek. I did not know you, and I thought... She stooped to kiss the child, and fondly clasped her arm round his neck. You thought I was going to kidnap your son, I suppose? She stroked his head, with a half-embarrassed laugh, and replied, I did not know he had attempted to climb the wall. I have the pleasure of addressing Mr. Markham, I believe, she added, somewhat abruptly. I bowed, but ventured to ask how she knew. Your sister called here, a few days ago, with Mrs. Markham. Is the resemblance that strong, then? I asked, in some surprise, and not so greatly flattered at the idea as I ought to have been. There is a likeness about the eyes and complexion, I think, replied she, somewhat dubiously surveying that my face. And I think I saw you in church on Sunday. I smiled. There was something either in that smile or the recollections it awakened that was particularly displeasing for her, for she suddenly assumed again that proud, chilly look that had so unspeakably roused my aversion at church. A look of repellent scorn, so easily assumed, and so entirely without the least distortion of a single feature, that while there, it seemed like the natural expression of the face, and was the most provoking to me, because I could not think it affected. "'Good morning, Mr. Markham,' she said, and without another word or glance, she withdrew her child into the garden, and I returned home. "'Angry?' and dissatisfied. I could scarcely tell you why, and therefore I will not attempt it. I only stayed to put away my gun and powder horn, and give some requisite directions to one of my farming men, and then I repaired to the vicarage, to solace my spirit and soothe my ruffled temper, with the company and conversation of Eliza Millwood. I found her, as usual, busy with some piece of soft embroidery. The mania of Berlin wools had not yet commenced, while a sister was seated at the chimney corner, with a cat on her knee, mending a heap of stockings. Mary, Mary, put them away! Eliza was hastily staying, just as I entered the room. Not I, indeed, was the phlegmatic reply, and my appearance prevented further discussion. You're so unfortunate, Mr. Markham, observed the younger sister, with one of her arch sidelong glances. Papa's just gone out into the parish, and not likely be back for an hour. Never mind, I can manage to spend a few minutes with his daughters, if they'll allow me, said I, bringing a chair to the fire and seating myself therein, without waiting to be asked. Well, if you'll be very good and amusing, we shall not object. Let your permission be unconditional, pray, for I came not to give pleasure, but to seek it, I answered. However, 
I thought it but reasonable to make some slight exertions to render my company agreeable, and what little effort I made was apparently pretty successful. For Miss Eliza was never in better humour. We seemed, indeed, to be mutually pleased with each other, and managed to maintain between us a cheerful and animated, though not very profound, conversation. It was little better than a tete-a-tete, for Miss Millwood never opened her lips, except occasionally to correct some random assertion or exaggerated expression of her sister's, and once to ask her to pick up a ball of cotton that had rolled under the table. I did this myself, however, as in duty bound. Thank you, Mr Markham, she said, as I presented it to her. I would have picked it up myself, only I did not want to disturb the cat. Mary, dear, that won't excuse you in Mr Markham's eyes said Eliza. He hates cats, I dare say as cordially, as he does old maids, like all other gentlemen. Dodge, Mr. Markham. I believe it is natural for our unamiable sex to dislike the creatures, replied I, for you ladies lavish so many caresses upon them. Bless them, little darlings, cried she, with a sudden burst of enthusiasm, turning round and overwhelming her sister's pet with a shower of kisses. Don't, Eliza, said Miss Millward, somewhat gruffly, as she impatiently pushed her away. But it was time for me to be going. Make what haste I would. I shall still be late for tea. My mother was the soul of order and punctuality. My fair friend was evidently unwilling to bid me adieu. I tenderly squeezed her little hand at parting, and she repaid me with one of her softest smiles and her most bewitching glances. I went home very happy, with a heart brimful of compliancy for myself and overflowing with love for Eliza. Chapter 3. A Controversy Two days after, Mrs Graham called at Linden Carr, contrary to the expectation of Rose, who entertained an idea that the mysterious occupant of Wildfell Hall would wholly disregard the common observance of civilised life, in which opinion she was supported by the Wilsons, who testified that neither their call nor the Millwoods had been returned as yet. Now, however, the cause of that omission was explained, though not entirely to the satisfaction of Rose. Mrs. Graham had brought her child with her, and on my mother's expressing surprise that he could walk so far, she replied, It is a long walk for him, but I must have either taken him with me, or relinquished the visit altogether, for I never leave him alone. And I think, Mrs. Markham, I must beg you make my excuses to the Millwoods, and Mrs. Wilson, when you see them as I fear I cannot do myself the pleasure of calling upon them till my little Arthur is able to accompany me. But you have a servant, said Rose. Could you not leave him with her? She has her own occupations to attend to, and besides, she is too old to run after a child, and he is too mercurial to be tied to an elderly woman. But you left him to come to church? Yes, once, but I would not have left him for any other purpose, and I think... In future, I must contrive to bring you with me, or stay at home. Is he so mischievous? asked my mother, considerably shocked. No, replied the lady, sadly smiling, as she stroked the wavy locks of her son, who was seated on a low stool at her feet. But he is my only treasure, and I am his only friend, and so we do not like to be separated. But, my dear, I call that doting, said my plain-spoken parent, you should try to suppress such foolish fondness, as well to save your son from ruin as yourself from ridicule. Ruin? 
Mrs. Markham. Yes, it is spoiling the child, even at his age. He ought not to be always tied to his mother's apron strings. He should learn to be ashamed of it. Mrs. Markham, I beg you will not say such things in his presence. At least, I trust my son will never be ashamed to love his mother, said Mrs. Graham, with a serious energy that startled the company. My mother attempted to appease her by an explanation, but she seemed to think enough had been said on the subject, and abruptly turned the conversation. Just as I thought, I said to myself, the lady's temper is none of the mildest, notwithstanding her sweet pale face and lofty brow, where thought and suffering seemed equally to have stamped their impress. All this time I was seated at a table, on the other side of the room, apparently immersed in the perusal of a volume of the Farmer's Magazine, which I happened to have been reading at the moment of their visitor's arrival, and not choosing to be over-civil. I had merely bowed as she entered, and continued my occupation as before. In a little while, however, I was sensible that someone was approaching me, with a light but slow and hesitating tread. It was little Arthur. Irresistibly attracted to my dog Sancho, that was lying at my feet. On looking up, I beheld him standing about two yards off, with his clear blue eyes wistfully gazing at the dog, transfixed to the spot, not by fear of the animal, but by a timid disinclination to approach its master. A little encouragement, however, induced him to come forward. The child, though shy, was not sullen. In a minute, he was kneeling on the carpet, with his arms around Sancho's neck. In a minute or two more, the little fellow was seated on my knee, surveying with eager interest the various specimens of horses, cattle, pigs, and model farms portrayed in the volume before me. I glanced at his mother now and then, to see how she relished the new-sprung intimacy, and I saw, by the unquiet aspect of her eye, that for some reason or another, she was uneasy by the child's position. Arthur, she said at length, come here. You are troubling Mr. Markham. He wishes to read. By no means, Mrs. Graham. Pray let him stay. I am as much amused as he is, pleaded I. But still, with hand and eye, she silently called him to her side. No, mamma, said the child. Let me look at these pictures first, and then I'll come. I'll tell you about them. We're going to have a small party on Monday, the 5th of November, said my mother. And I hope you will not refuse to make one, Mrs. Graham. You can bring your little boy with you. I dare say we shall be able to amuse him. And then you can make your own apologies to the Millwoods and Wilsons. They'll be here, I expect. Thank you. I never go to parties. Oh, but this will be quite a family concern. Early hours, and nobody here but ourselves, and just the Millwoods and Wilsons, most of whom you already know, and Mr Lawrence, your landlord, with whom you ought to make acquaintance. I do know something of him, but you must excuse me this time, for the evenings now are dark and damp. And Arthur, I fear, is too delicate to risk exposure to their influence with impunity. We must defer the enjoyment of your hospitality till the return of the longer days and warmer nights. Rose, now, at a hint from my mother, produced a decanter of wine, with accompaniments of glasses and cake, from the cupboard and the oak sideboard, and the refreshment was duly presented to the guests. They both partook the cake, but obstinately refused the wine in spite of their hostess's hospitable attempts to force it upon them, 
Arthur especially shrank from the ruby nectar, as if in terror and disgust, and was ready to cry when urged to take it. Never mind, Arthur, said his mamma. Mrs. Grames thinks it will do you good, as you were tired with your walk, but she will not oblige you to take it. I dare say you will do well without. He detests the very sight of wine, she added, and the smell of it almost makes him sick. I have been accustomed to make him swallow a little wine or weak spirit and water by way of medicine when he was sick, and, in fact, I have done what I could to make him hate them. Everybody laughed, except the young widow and her son. Well, Mrs. Graham, said my mother, wiping the tears of merriment from her bright blue eyes, well, you surprise me. I really gave you credit for having more sense. The poor child will be the veriest milksop that was ever sopped. Only think what a man you will make of him if you persist in. I think it's a very excellent plan, interrupted Mrs. Graham with imperturbable gravity, by which means I hope to save him from one degrading vice at least. I wish I could render the incentive to every other equal innoxious in his case. But by such means, said I, you will never render him virtuous. What is it that constitutes virtue, Mrs. Graham? Is it the circumstance of being able and willing to resist temptation? Or that of having no temptation to resist? Is he a strong man that overcomes great obstacles and performs surprising achievements, though by dint of great muscular exertion and at the risk of some subsequent fatigue? Or he that sits in his chair all day with nothing to do more laborious than steering the fire and carrying his food to his mouth? If you would have your son to walk honourably through the world, you must not attempt to clear the stones from his path, but teach him to walk firmly over them, not insist upon leading him by the hand, but let him learn to go alone. I will lead him by the hand, Mr. Markham, till he has strength to go alone, and I will clear as many stones from his path as I can, and teach him to avoid the rest or walk firmly over them. As you say, for when I have done my utmost, in the way of clearance, there will still be plenty left to exercise all the agility, steadiness, and circumspection he will ever have. It is all very well to talk about noble resilience and trials of virtue, but for fifty or five hundred men that have yielded to temptation, show me one that has had virtue to resist. And why should I take it for granted that my son will be one in a thousand, and not rather prepare for the worst, and suppose he will be like his like? for the rest of mankind, unless I take care to prevent it. You are very complimentary to us all, I observed. I know nothing about you. I speak of those I do know, and when I see the whole race of mankind, with a few rare exceptions, stumbling and blundering along the path of life, sinking into every pitfall, and breaking their shins over every impediment that lies in their way, shall I not use all the means I have in my power, to ensure for him a smoother and safer passage. Yes, but the surest means will be to endeavour to fortify him against temptation, not remove it out of his way. I will do both, Mr. Markham. God knows he will have temptation enough to assail him, both from within and without, when I have done all I can to render vice as uninviting to him as it is abominable in its own nature. I myself have had, indeed, but few incentives to what the world calls vice, but yet I have experienced temptation and trials of another kind, that have required, on many occasions, more watchful and firmness to resist that I have hitherto been able to muster against them. And this, I believe, 
is what most others would acknowledge who are accustomed to reflection and wishful to strive against their natural corruption. Yes, said my mother, but half apprehending her drift. But you would not judge of a boy by yourself, and... My dear Mrs. Graham, let me warn you in good time against the error, the fatal error, I may call it, of taking that boy's education upon yourself, because you are clever in some things, and well informed, you may fancy yourself equal to the task, but indeed you are not. And if you persist in the attempt, believe me, you will bitterly repent it when the mischief is done. I am to send him to school, I suppose, to learn to despise his mother's authority and affection, said the lady, with a rather bitter smile. Oh, no, but if you would have a boy to despise his mother, let her keep him at home, and spend her life in petting him up, and slaving to indulge his follies and caprices. I perfectly agree with you, Mrs. Markham, but nothing can be further from my principle and practices than such a criminal weakness as that. Well, but you will treat him like a girl. You'll spoil his spirit and make a mere Miss Nancy of him. You will. Indeed, Mrs. Graham, whatever you may think. But I'll get Mr. Millward to talk to you about it. He'll tell you the consequences. He'll set it before you as plain as the day and tell you what you ought to do and all about it. And I don't doubt he'll be able to convince you in a minute. No occasion to trouble the vicar, said Mrs. Graham, glancing at me. I suppose I was smiling at my mother's unbound confidence in that worthy gentleman. Mr. Markham here thinks his powers of conviction at least equal to Mr. Millward's. If I hear not him, neither should I be convinced though one rose from the dead. He would tell you. Well, Mr. Markham, you that maintain that a boy should not be shielded from evil, but send out into battle against it, alone and unassailed, not taught to avoid the snares of life, but boldly to rush into them, or over them, as you may, to seek danger rather than shun it, and feed his virtue by temptation. Would you? I beg your pardon, Mrs. Graham, but you get on too fast. I have not yet said that the boy should be taught to rush into the snares of life, or even willfully to seek temptation for the sake of exercising his virtue by overcoming it. I only said that it is better to arm and strengthen your hero than to disarm and enfeeble the foe. And, if you were to rear an oak sapling in a hothouse, tending it carefully night and day, and shielding it from every breath of wind, you could not expect it to become a hardy tree, like that which has grown upon the mountainside, exposed to all the actions of the elements, and not even to be sheltered from the shock of the tempest. Granted, but would you use the same argument with regard for a girl? Certainly not. No, you would have her to be tenderly and delicately nurtured, like a hothouse plant, taught to cling to others for direction and support, and guarded, as much as possible, from the very knowledge of evil. But will you be so good? as to inform me why you make this distinction. Is it you think that she has no virtue? Assuredly not. Well, but you affirm that virtue is only listed by temptation, and you think that a woman cannot be too little exposed to temptation, or too little acquainted with vice, or anything connected herewith. It must be either that you think she is essentially so vicious, or so feeble-minded that she cannot withstand temptation, and though she may be pure and innocent, as long as she is kept in ignorance and restraint, 
Yet being destitute of real virtue to teach her how to sin is at once to make her a sinner. And the greater her knowledge, the wider her liberty, the deeper will be her depravity. Whereas in the nobler sex there is a natural tendency to goodness, guarded by the superior fortitude which the more it is exercised by trial and dangers is only the further developed. Heaven forbid that I should think so, I interrupted her at last. Well then, it must be that you think they are both weak and prone to err, and the slightest error, the mere shadow of pollution, will ruin the one, while the character of the other will be strengthened and embellished, his education properly finished by a little practical acquaintance with forbidden things. Such experiences to him, to use a trite simile, will be like the storm to the oak, which, though it may scatter the leaves and snap the smaller branches, serve but to rivet the roots, and to harden and condense the fibres of the tree. You'd have us encourage our sons to prove all things by their own experiences, while our daughters must not even profit by the experience of others. Now I would have both. So to benefit by the experience of others, and the percepts of a higher authority, that they should know beforehand to refuse the evil and choose the good, and require no experimental proof to teach them the evil of transgression. I would not send the poor girl into the world unarmed against her foes, and ignorant of the snares that beset her path, nor would I watch and guard her, till, deprived of self-respect and self-reliance, she lost the power or will to watch and guard herself, and, as for my son, if I thought he would grow up to be what you call a man of the world, one that has seen life and glories in his experience, even though he should so far profit by it as to sober down, at length, into a useful and respected member of society. I would rather that he died tomorrow, rather a thousand times. She earnestly repeated, pressing her darling to her side, kissing his forehead with intense affection. He had already left his new companion, and been standing for some time beside his mother's knee, looking up into her face, and listening in silent wonder to her incomprehensible discord. Well, you ladies must always have the last word, I suppose said I, observing her eyes and beginning to take leave of my mother. You may have as many words as you please, only I cannot stay to hear them. No, that is the way. You hear just as much of an argument as you please, and the rest may be spoken to the wind. If you are anxious to say anything more on the subject, replied she, as she shook hands with Rose, you must bring your sister to see me some fine day, and I'll listen as patiently as you could wish, to whatever you please to say. I would rather be lectured by you than the vicar, because I should have less remorse in telling you, at the end of the discord, that I preserve my own opinions precisely the same as at the beginning, as would be the case. I am persuaded, with regard to either logician. Yes, of course, replied I, determined to be as provoking as herself. For when a lady does consent to listen to an argument against her own opinions, she is always predetermined to withstand it, to listen only with her bodily ears, keeping her mental organs resolutely closed against the strongest reasoning. Good morning, Mr. Markham, said my fair antagonist, with a pitying smile and deigning no further rejoinder. She slightly bowed and was about to withdraw. But her son, with childish impertinence, arrested her by exclaiming, Mamma, you've not shaken hands with Mr. Markham. 
She laughingly turned around and held out her hand. I gave it a spiteful squeeze, for I was annoyed at her continual injustice she had done me from the very dawn of our acquaintance. Without knowing anything about my real disposition and principles, she was evidently prejudiced against me, and seemed bent upon showing me that her opinion respecting me, on every particular, fell far below those I entertained of myself. I was naturally touchy, or it would have not vexed me so much. Perhaps, too, I was a little bit spoiled by my mother and sister, and some other ladies of my acquaintance. Yet I was by no means a fop. Of that I am fully convinced, whether you are or not. <laughs> Whew, that was a conversation there. <laughs> and, and, also, Gilbert at the end. <laughs> he, he walks up to the precipice of admitting that he was completely and utterly spoiled by his mother and very near ruined because of it. He sort of acknowledges, but then pulls it back at the end. And it's like, well, it couldn't have been that bad. Right? Right? Hello? Right? However, it is important because I came across a quote that I think is very interesting. I don't know that I agree 100% with it, but it's worth keeping in mind. And that is, spoiled men are the tragic center of this novel. And another reviewer wrote, the novel asks, what if babies ruled the world? It answers, they already do. So yeah, and, and Bronte had something to say. And I can't think of another book we've read that hits that nail quite so far on the head as this one. But fun stuff, too. Did you notice, for example, just how familiar Gilbert is with Eliza Millwood's family and home? He, he gets a chair and pulls it up to the fire. He is not invited to sit down. He just does. And we also got to see some of the, the terrible, terrible treatment of Mary, the unmarried sister who is now a spinster and just so badly treated. But, you know, the big show is when Helen Graham pays her visit to Gilbert's home. Big deal, obviously. Also letting us know that Markham lives close enough to Wildfell Hall, as if we we probably guessed already, but close enough that uh, Mrs. Graham and her son could make the, the trek, but they can't go see anybody else because those people are too far away. And she will not leave her son alone. She will not leave him with the, the servant who was living with her at Wildfell Hall. And here's our first moment, I guess, of situational irony. Is, so Gilbert's mom, at the end of chapter one, had the, there was a description of her having been particularly irked when the vicar would lecture her about how she was doing a horrible job of raising her sons. And that sometimes she would snap and say, well, if he just had some boys, I think he would be a little bit more understanding <laughs> of all of this. He's only had girls. So, and here we are with Mrs. Markham, not only having patted herself on the back for having 
imparted some of her wisdom to Helen Graham when Gilbert's mom went to visit. But now here we are again, and they're just jumping on Mrs. Graham about not babying her son. It is something we know about Anne Bronte because of her poetry, that she was deeply self-reflective and quite comfortable with finding, uh, with being critical in a way that led her to trying to be better. So not so much berating herself or getting down on herself, but once she found a flaw, figuring out how to make things better, like turn it into a positive. So when, when Helen, in part of her conversation, says, God knows he will have temptations enough to assail him, both from without and within. When I have done all I can to render vice as uninviting to him as it is abominable in its own nature, I myself have had, indeed, but few incentives to what the world calls vice, but yet I have experienced temptations and trials of another kind that have required on many occasions more watchfulness and firmness to resist than I have hitherto been able to muster against them. And this, I believe, is what most others would acknowledge who are accustomed to reflection and wishful to strive against their natural corruptions. And Gilbert's mom didn't entirely understand that. But one of the important things, and again, this is the characterization through show, don't tell, is she just dropped some interesting bombs here. She seems totally respectable. She's educated. She's cultured. The, the dame's got class is what we're saying. But she says, number one, she's done everything she can to make vice, bad behavior, uninviting to her son. So how'd she do that? We will find out later. And though she says she hasn't had many incentives to what the world calls vice, which means she hasn't had a whole lot of opportunities to interact with something that, that people would say is a vice, Yet she has experienced temptations and trials of another kind that have required on many occasions more watchfulness and firmness to resist than I have hitherto been able to muster against them. So she understands both temptation and also weakness in the face of dealing with temptation. Do we know what those temptations have been? No, we do not. But one of the things we do know is that she is really, really not interested in having her son have any wine, watered down wine or otherwise. And that, my friends, is what we call foreshadowing in the biz. The other thing that I didn't talk about before, you'll make a mere Miss Nancy of him. Nancy was a slang term for a a weak male. And it originally, and then it morphed into kind of an anti-gay slur eventually. And that is exactly what we're going after here. It's you don't want, you don't want your son to be fae, do you? But then Mrs. Graham goes, goes for the jugular. Don't trouble the vicar. I want to talk to him anyway. And anyway, Mr. Markham thinks that he's at least as good as the vicar at convincing me, so I may as well keep talking to someone who I at least find pleasant, and that would be not the vicar. So that's pretty straightforward. 
she is not mincing any words. And then, of course, the moment that we were all waiting for the, okay, so this is how you think we should raise a boy is, you know, let him, let him, boy's got to do what a boy's got to do. And in other books, it would never happen. But here, God bless her, it does. And is that how you should raise a girl too? Big ol' honk and question mark. Good God, woman, what are you talking about? No, of course not. <laughs> uh, yes. So here's the thing about the Bronte family. Patrick was not afraid of strong women at all and evidently did a pretty good job of expecting his girls to keep up. I mean, fiscally, of course, it was a horrible situation because Branwell was going to, it looked like, become the guy who would take care of all of his sisters if they didn't get married uh, once their father passed away. Of course, this all went horribly, horribly wrong. But Patrick Bronte never restrained the girls intellectually. I mean, he, he bought them the magazines that they wanted to read. And by magazines, I mean serialized, the, the big, thick magazines that were also serialized stories and, and uh, things like that. They also had a copy of Byron. They had read Don Juan, which is pretty racy, really. Um, there was no, aside from the, the physical restrictions of just flat out being female and that there were certain things that for one thing you couldn't do in your skirts but for another thing you really would have caused a scandal if you had hauled off and done anything outside of the the norm uh, and they were the vicar's children so that was a restrictive thing it, I think it had more to do with that than it did with being female to be completely honest and they from all their poetry and everything that seemed to be fine with them. They just wanted to be writers, and Charlotte very much wanted to be famous as a writer, or she wanted to be known for being a writer. I think Anne was a little closer to Mrs. Gaskell. That would have been a happy life for her. This is also, uh, whereas North and South was a problem of England novel, this novel is a different kind of problem novel. It's a temperance novel. And we are seeing the, the first hints of that, and we will learn the roots of that in the middle third of the book. So one of the other things that I love about Anne Bronte is Helen hauls off and monologues her, her diatribe against how the raising of children is in her vision fundamentally flawed uh, in habit in that time period. It's very easy to read her or hear her speech as angry, shrill, unforgiving, confrontational, pugilistic, you know, like a fighting stance. But at the end, when her son says, Mama, you haven't shaken Mr. Markham's hand, she turns around and laughs and shakes his hand. Laughter that is not jaded, laughter that is not sarcastic, laughter that is not mean, but open-faced and well-meant. And that matters. Again, these chapters where we're building characterization and our, our understandings of all of these characters are 
hugely important in this book, maybe even more so than in others, because it being a problem novel, a temperance novel, it would be very easy to believe that the people who inhabit this book are all Jenny OneNote, that they, they only have a facet to their personality. They are not multifaceted people. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. These are very complicated, very interesting people. And uh, you will meet some people who are fairly two-dimensional, but we haven't gotten there yet. So Gilbert Markham loves dogs, loves kids, is Johnny on the spot picking up the, or catching the kid before he drops to the ground. And he's okay with finding a fiendish disputant in Mrs. Graham. And Mrs. Graham seems more than comfortable arguing with him. So that's an interesting turn. We also know that everybody disagrees with Helen Graham on how to raise a child, her son. And we will probably hear from the vicar on this point as well, even more. It's very likely. So I hope you enjoyed today's chapters. It's a it's an interesting book, right? I mean, it's it's not what I expected from a Bronte novel. I'm going to guess it's not what you expected either. But I appreciate that you tuned in to listen no matter what. Uh, if you have comments or questions, please feel free to call the listener line 206-350-1642. And I'll talk to you next week. Take care. Be well. Be well. Be well. Take care of each other be kind. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlit listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>